Let's bow your heads with me and let's pray one more time for the blessing of God's Word as it's preached for us. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we are ignorant and we would be ignorant of all of who you are if you had not revealed yourself to us in your holy word, if you had not taken the initiative to give us the Bible. We would be lost, completely lost. And we would be rebellious. We would be helpless. We would think that we know who you are and who you ought to be and we would be completely wrong. But you, in your gracious mercy, have given us your word and so we pray now that by your Spirit who breathed that word out, would you help us to understand it, to interpret it rightly? Would you cause us to feel about your truth the way you feel about it? Would you cause us to obey your truth as you intend? Oh Lord, arrest our attention this morning. Compel us to tend to your truth. Take us by our hearts. Address us. Speak to us. Help us to hear. Subdue our hearts that we might honor your name. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Many of us say the words, I love you, with remarkable ease. I think we all know that actually loving someone requires far more than words. I might tell my wife I love her, but do I love her indeed or just in word? Do I tell her I love her because I want something out of her or because I want her to know that I am willing to love her in deed and in truth? How do I know? How does she know that I love her other than by my shortcut way of just telling her? Do I love her or do I just love to tell her that I love her? Because it makes me feel like I'm doing the loving just by telling her. More importantly, how can I know if I love Jesus? How can you know if you love Jesus? That is the question that John confronts us with this morning. In fact, John, in fact, Jesus himself confronts us with it as John gives us a front row seat for one last conversation between Jesus and Peter. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to John 21, verse 15. John 21, 15, that's page 907 in the Pew Bible, in the pew in front of you. We'll learn six ways that we can know if we love Jesus. Six ways that we can know whether or not we love Jesus. Peter will remember from last week in 
the first half of John 21. And previously, in chapters 18 and 19, he had just denied Jesus three times. Peter appears to want to prove his love to Jesus when he realized that it was him on the beach, risen from the dead. He was telling them, hey, put your net on the other side of the boat. And now Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? Now, Jesus is not hoping to learn something from Peter or about Peter. Jesus knows all about Peter. Jesus is teaching Peter something about himself. Jesus is teaching Peter how Peter can know that he loves Jesus after he has denied him three times. But after telling Peter, feed my sheep and follow me, follow me to the cross, ultimately, Peter immediately turns and looks at John, who also is following, and asks what's going to happen to him leading to a further admonition about the same lesson. Follow me. The scene in the whole book ends with John's own testimony to the reliability of what he himself has seen and heard, including his own witness to this closing conversation between Jesus and Peter. And that testimony of love, written down and preserved in Scripture as written by Jesus' apostles, is our own historical and literary link to the person of Jesus himself. It's what enables us to love Jesus as Peter was supposed to love Jesus. So we have here at least six possible lines of evidence for answering the question, do I love Jesus? Do I love him? And I hope by the end of our time together, you will not only care more deeply about that question as it applies to you, I hope you'll also be able, by God's grace, to see some of these evidences in your own heart, your own life, your own relationships. So follow along with me in your Bible as I read out loud for us, John 21, 15 to 25. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one also who had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. 
Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. How can I know that I love Jesus? Six lines of evidence. First, love for Jesus learns not to compete with others who love Jesus. Love for Jesus learns not to compete. Verses 15 to 17. Jesus' opening question, you'll notice, is not just, do you love me? It's, do you love me more than these? It's a comparative question. The sense of that question is not, do you love me more than these fish you caught and the kind of living that they provide you as a vocation? Are you willing to leave that lifestyle? That's not the, the, the sense. He's not asking Peter, do you love me more than you love your job? Nor is it, do you love me more than you love the six other disciples here? No, the sense is, do you love me more than these other six disciples love me? Because that is exactly the issue that Peter struggles with. That is what made him look a little bit self-conscious in chapter 21. Peter had denied Jesus three times in one night just a couple of weeks ago, and so when Jesus appears to them on the beach, risen from the dead, here for the third time, Peter is the only one Note, who jumps out of the boat and wades in the water to get to him first before the other disciples. And only Peter volunteered to drag a net full of 153 big fish up to the shore at Jesus' command. From what Peter does, from what John is showing you about what Peter does here just in this paragraph, in this chapter, it looks like he's trying to prove that his love for Jesus is greater than the other disciples' love for Jesus. I want to run to him first. I want to be the one to drag the big net. Let me be the one. I have to be the one, because I'm the one who betrayed him three times. When Jesus said in Matthew 26, 31, you will all fall away because of me this night, who was it that said in his own defense, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. They might, but I will never fall away. That was Peter who made that comparison. I will be different. I will be the last man standing with you. I will excel them. I will outlast them. I will outsuffer them. Peter thinks. Their loyalty will fail, but mine will prevail. I will win. I will be proven loyal. I am sure of it. Certainly more loyal than they are. And of course, Peter was the only one who dared to draw his sword and cut off Malchus's ear when the detachment of soldiers detained Jesus in Gethsemane. From all of this, it is very hard to think that Peter had no opinion in Luke 9.46, when an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Sure seems like Peter's angling to be the greatest. And he thinks 
He's got a shot until that fateful night. And now he's got some making up to do. Or perhaps so he thinks. So when Jesus asked Peter, not simply, do you love me, but do you love me more than these? Jesus knows he's speaking into Peter's sinful weakness. And in saying it three times, there's a sense in which he is reinstating Peter. That's true. You denied me three times. I'm going to give you the chance to reaffirm your love for me three times. Okay, now we're back to even. Now we're back to good. That's true. Many of us have heard that before. But these three questions do not merely restore Peter from his failure. They do that, but they do more. They remind Peter of his failure and encourage his humility in light of it. See, we want to skip to all the comfort. Ah, restoring Peter, restoring Peter, restoring Peter. Wonderful. But not before Peter is reminded is he restored. And Peter gets it because Peter does not reply, yes, you know I love you more than they love you. He does not say that. He simply says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. I think he probably wished he could say, I love you more than these. But he didn't say that. He knew not to say it. He had learned not to say that. You know I love you. Not competitively now. Not comparatively. Not arrogantly. And certainly not perfectly. But Lord, you know I love you. Faltering as my love has just proven. You know I love you and you know I both know that my love abandoned you in a way that hurt you far more than these questions are hurting me. I know I abandoned you. I know I can't claim a superior love for you anymore. And yet, Peter remains confident enough to appeal to Jesus' knowledge of him, and that is admirable. To be able to appeal to Jesus' knowledge of you, to say, you know I love you, Jesus. That's a clear conscience. But he's not quite so confident as to compare his love for Jesus with the other disciples' love for Jesus. That, too, is admirable. Peter is chastened by his failures. He's humbled. He is lowered in his own mind. His denials have brought him down a few pegs. He is not so self-congratulatory anymore. He is not so quick to toot his own horn or to put himself forward among his peers. He has learned something. He has learned not to compete for recognition or position, not to compare himself with others. He has learned not to try to manipulate Jesus or try to present his own affection for Jesus in a light that makes him look better than all the others who also love Jesus. Peter is learning to quit posturing. Christian, I wonder if you have learned this yet. I mean, maybe you are learning it now. Maybe you are going through circumstances that are making you learn that even against your will. 
We do not want to compete with one another as if to establish who loves Jesus more. A spirit of competition, whether it's within a local church or whether it's between and among local churches, reveals self-love and self-ambition. This is one of the reasons we pray for other churches publicly regularly to undermine and undercut that sense or that temptation to try to compete with other churches. But that sense of competition is evident when we want to be the ones known for giving or serving or leading or teaching or giving the counsel that eventually changed somebody's mind or helped somebody to grow the most. It's evident when we want credit. It's evident when we want to be known as the person who knows the most about the Bible. It's evident when we covet each other's relationships or recognition. Oh, I wanted to be the one to bear that fruit in that other person's life. I wanted to be the one to teach them that. I wanted to be the one... Da, da, da. And then we begin to envy each other for the relationships that we have. We become jealous as if we deserve those relationships and responsibilities or titles more than they do. Or we deserve those abilities or we deserve the rewards more than those to whom God has given them. See how comparison leads to coveting, wanting what someone else has in a relationship or gift. Coveting leads to envy, resenting that other person. And envy leads to jealousy, thinking, hey, I deserve that more than they do. Spirit of comparison, competition comes out when we're possessive with discipling relationships. And we think, hey, I'm, I'm getting together with somebody every week or every other week. And then we learn that someone else is getting together with them too. What? They're learning from someone else? I have to share that discipling relationship? Yes, you do. Love for Jesus does not compete for recognition. And that is one way you know that you do love Jesus, that others don't have to recognize that you love him more than they do. You don't have to get the credit. Having said all that, the comparative note in Jesus' question does look forward to the love that will be required from Peter to lay down his life for Jesus in verse 19. You love me more than these? Because only love for me will enable you to endure what is ahead of you. Peter will be called to love Jesus to the death, unlike some of the other disciples, and only genuine love for Jesus can motivate that kind of self-sacrifice. You won't sacrifice anything for Jesus at all if you don't love him if you don't have affection for Him, if you don't have an affectionate loyalty and a loyal affection for Jesus, not just a respect, but an admiration, a worship for Him that compels you 
to give yourself up for him and for his purposes in other people's lives and in the world. You must love him. Second, love for Jesus cares for his followers. Love for Jesus cares for his followers. And love for Jesus, in other words, expresses care. Peter will know that he loves Jesus not by, simply by how Peter feels about Jesus, but by how Peter feeds Jesus' flock. And I can say I have a loyal affection and affectionate loyalty for Jesus. I love Jesus. I love how he does this. I love how he does that. I love how he puts the Pharisees in, in their place. Man, that's awesome. I love how he argues. I love how he uses rationality. I love how he heals people. I love how he's so gentle with, with the weak and the poor and the sick. But if that love doesn't express itself in care for other people who love Jesus, I don't think Jesus believes you when you say that you love him. Because look at how he's encouraging Peter here. You love me? We'll see. Feed my sheep. You love me? Treat my sheep this way. You you see right there, you cannot love Jesus and be indifferent to the church. You can't do that. Jesus doesn't believe you. You can't say you love Jesus and be like, yeah, but uh, the whole church thing, I don't really buy that. So that's kind of, I take an exception to that. But yeah, me and Jesus are tight. And tighter than all those church people. And I actually think I love Jesus so much that I just can't be slowed down by those church people. Oh, really? What sense then can you make of this passage? Peter will know he loves Jesus by how he treats the people Jesus saves. Care for Christ's people is the Christ-appointed litmus test of love for Jesus himself. You see, that's why we encourage you to be here a lot. That's why we encourage you to be together a lot. Because the way you're going to know you love Jesus is not just by how much you tell us you love Jesus. It's by how you treat us, how you treat each other. You love to be together? That's how you know you love Jesus. That's how you know. You love to be together and then do good to each other. Even if you're not the one being done good to, now, now you're getting somewhere. Now we know that you love Jesus. Now Jesus knows that you love Jesus. Feed my lambs. Do good to them. The more you care for his people, the more you will know you love Jesus. Because Jesus cares for his people. You want to have Jesus' heart? Know his people. Love them. Initiate with them. Take an interest in them. Care for them. Give yourself up for them. Make conversations about them and not you. Come to church with a mentality of doing good to Jesus' people. That's 
how you know you love Jesus. Because that's how Jesus comes to church, looking to do his people good. To love Jesus, you must love who he is. Friend, have you ever considered that you do not know whether you love Jesus or not precisely because you are indifferent to the needs and cares of his people here? You cannot sit lightly to the church and yet be confident that you love Jesus all by your lonesome. If you want to prove your love to Jesus, to yourself and to Jesus, then what Jesus tells you to do is take care of his flock in in your local church. It is not rocket science. It's pretty earthy. Now this applies particularly to Peter and to the apostles. We understand that. They're going to feed us on the inspired word of God that they write. But even though we're not apostles, we claim to love Jesus too. And Jesus says that love for him expresses itself in care for his flock that does them spiritual good and nourishes them and strengthens them in Christ and in his word. So again, Jesus himself does not buy the logic, I love Jesus, but I can't stand the church. Well, if, if you say that, I don't think Jesus can stand to hear you say that. I can't stand the church, but I love Jesus. Well, Jesus says to that, I can't stand to hear you say that. Because this is how I treat the church. Imperfect as they are. Inconstant as their loyalty to me is. Just as inconstant as Peter's. Feed my lamb. I mean, Peter himself had to love churches that were turning against his own apostolic doctrine and practice. Read the letters that he wrote, first thing of Peter. Peter had to write to Christians in churches who were abandoning the Christian sexual ethic because they had fallen for false teachers who denied that Jesus would ever return to judge the wicked and save his people. Like some of these people that Peter wrote to could not sign our own statement of faith because they were leaving the doctrine of Jesus' judgment at the final day. Second Peter. And what if Peter had said, well, I love Jesus, but I'm tired of loving this church or these churches because the church doesn't love me back very well, so I quit. You wouldn't have a New Testament on that logic. In the very point of fact, Peter died a martyr's death precisely because he was publicly known to lead and care for just these churches who were in need of his own correction and rebuke on basic doctrine and Christian ethics until the day he died. When people love and care for your children, when people show an interest in your own children's well-being, you take that as love for yourself, don't you? When people ask what your children have endured, or when they include your children in invitations and conversations, when people teach your children things that you want them to learn, you take it as love for you. You take it as love for you when other people serve your children in the children's ministry, don't you? Thank you. When people care for what you own, when people pick up the wallet you didn't know you dropped... 
and they hand it back to you, you don't take that as admiration for your wallet. You take that as a kindness done to you. Because that wallet is important and valuable to you. And Jesus is like that about his church. Apple of his eye. He bought the church with his own blood. We are his possession. He calls us children and friends. Love for Jesus notices and recognizes and serves his sheep unavoidably. Because love for Jesus knows what Jesus loves. This has been a point Jesus has been at pains to make. John 13, 34, just as I have loved you, you also are to love, not merely me, Jesus says. He doesn't say, as I have loved you, so you love me. As I have loved you, so you love one another. By this, by this, your love for one another, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see why the church is so important. You can't do that without a church. They will know you love me not by your talking about how you feel about me, but how you imitate my love and your relationships with each other. And that is how you yourselves will know that you love Jesus. By how you love his people. John says as much, 1 John 4, 20, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has, has not seen. But love for Jesus' sheep proves itself in a particular way. Jesus doesn't just say, do you love me? Love my sheep. You love me, Peter? Then love my sheep. He doesn't say that. He says, do you love me? Then feed. Feed my sheep. Not do you love me, then show sappy sentimental affection for my people. Do you love me, then contribute to the therapeutic self-esteem of my people and make them feel good about themselves even when they don't feel good about themselves. No, he says feed them. Nourish my sheep on the bread of life. Give my sheep the food that will help them grow strong. Gather them and keep them together in the safety of the flock. Guide them into the green pastures of Scripture. Love for Jesus cares to strengthen the other sheep who love Jesus so that they will love Him more. Love for Jesus teaches others how and why they should love and obey Jesus. Friends, this is why we cannot call ourselves Christians and yet show little to no care for how everybody else here is growing in Christ. There's a principle in biology called irreducible complexity. Some of you have heard of that. A biological process like blood clotting requires a number of different elements and you cannot reduce the complexity of the process by any of those elements and still have anything that is related to or even becoming blood clotting. It's irreducibly complex. You cannot reduce the complexity of it by taking away any of its constituent elements and still have anything remotely resembling blood clotting. It just doesn't work like that.
A simplified version of this is the first time I ever tried to make brownies before I moved out of my parents' house. We had no eggs in the house. Well, I thought, well, how important can one egg be to the brownie making? Pro I mean, it's only one. Certainly one egg can't make that big of difference. What came out of that oven was not something called a brownie without an egg in it. It was inedible, unchewable, undesirable. It was not something that looked familiar to me as brownie. It didn't even count as food. Without the egg, there is no brownie worth mentioning, much less worth eating. It's the same with discipling, with disciple-making among those who love Jesus. Loving Jesus is irreducibly complex. You cannot reduce the complexity of it and still have love for Jesus by taking out the element of loving other people who love Jesus. You simply cannot love Jesus without loving those who Jesus loved to death. And seeking to do them good. Discipling others. Initiating conversation and relationship with other people in order to do them spiritual good from Scripture is part of the irreducible complexity of loving Jesus. That's just what it means to be a Christian. You've you got to get out of your head the possibility I can be a Christian without loving other Christians or helping them grow as Christians. That's not true. You can't do that. Discipling is not an add-on. It's not like a spoiler on a sports car. Do I want the spoiler or do I not want it? I mean, I'm, I know I'm getting the car. The question is, do I want a spoiler on the back of it or not? Can I, get, I think I can get away without the spoiler. It's a little too... Uh, I don't think I want it. That's not what loving other Christians is like and doing them good in the Christian life. It's not optional. It's part of the package. Jesus takes your care for other Christians as love for himself. And the opposite is true. Jesus takes your carelessness of other Christians as carelessness for him. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Feed my sheep. Feeding, strengthening, nourishing, encouraging, caring for Christ's sheep, being a good example for them, is the way Jesus wants you to love him. And love for Jesus motivates care as well. Still in our second point. Love for Jesus doesn't just express care. Love for Jesus also motivates that care for his followers. If you don't love Jesus, you only try to love his followers for what is lovable in them or for what you enjoy about them or for what you have in common with them, you're going to fail. There is no such thing as loving Christians 
without loving Jesus as the reason that you love other Christians. To love people because they deserve it or because they love you back, that's the way people get real disillusioned and bitter about churches and leave poorly. Okay? You know what I'm talking about. When people leave churches and on the exit interview, on the way out the door, well, why are you leaving? Well, we had seven or eight couples over and nobody reciprocated. Nobody invited us over. Well, why'd you do it? Is that why you did it? So that they would reciprocate? Or did you do it to do them good? Nobody reciprocated to Jesus on the day he died. All the disciples left him. Or they'll say things like, well, we, we helped people move, but nobody helped us move. Or we tried to serve the church in X or Y ministry, but no one served or helped us. Well, I understand. That, that's hurtful. I get that. I've been hurt like that before. But love for Christ's flock, motivated by love for Jesus, doesn't say those kind of things. Because when you're motivated by love for Jesus, it doesn't matter whether they reciprocate or not. Because Jesus loves you. And your love for them is motivated by your love for Jesus. You've got to love the church for Christ's sake if you are to keep loving the church at all, because the church is going to fail you. And I'm not just talking about other churches going to fail you, the church in general. This church is going to fail you. I am going to fail you. There's going to be a time in your life where you want my attention and I'm not going to give it to you and you're going to get mad at me. What are you going to do about that? Or there's going to come a time in your membership in this church six months from now, a year from now, three years from now, where you have a really close friendship and that friend becomes closer with another person than they are with you. What are you going to do about that? Or you're going to try to build somebody up in their faith in Christ and you're going to see them growing and they're going to attribute that growth to their relationship with somebody that's not you. (laughs) What are you going to do? Well, if you've loved them because you love Jesus, that stuff doesn't matter quite as much, does it? Love Jesus, and you will have the right motive and fuel to keep loving the members of the church, even when they do not look lovely, even when they do not act lovable, even when they do not love you back. You are right. We are not worthy of your love. Jesus is worthy of your love. And Jesus is worthy of you loving us for his sake, even when we disappoint you or hurt you. If you serve the church because you love Jesus, then you will not be so quickly or easily disillusioned with your disappointments in the church. But if you serve the church only because you want the church to serve you back in reciprocal ways, you're going to be sorely disappointed. This is how you know you love Jesus, when you love an unlovely church for His sake, not just theirs or yours.
Third, love for Jesus elicits the world's hatred. Verse 18, Jesus tells Peter, verse 18, he will not always enjoy the physical freedom of his younger years. One day, Peter's love for Jesus expressed in his love for Christ's people will result in the loss of his freedom. The loss of his freedom. Notice this. He will stretch out his hands and someone else will dress him and lead him where he does not want to go. Loss of freedom, American Christian. Loss of freedom as the consequence of loving God in Christ so much that you love and serve his people publicly. People will hate Peter so much that they will one day crucify him, even though by then he will be an old man. They will not take pity on him. On that day, Peter will need to love Jesus more than he loves the church. He will need to have loved the church for the sake of loving Jesus. Because love for the crucified and risen Christ is the only kind of love that can motivate and sustain our endurance through that kind of hatred from the world. You know, many of us look at these kind of things in the Bible or in 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 3rd century Christianity and we think, how in the world did they endure that suffering? How did they get eaten by lions while they were praying? The Bible tells you how. They loved Jesus. That's how. And that's why they did not love their lives even unto death. Or the loss of their political freedom. We should be prepared for the possibility that the world will not appreciate our love for Jesus as it works itself out in the church. To love Jesus, after all, is to switch sides from loving the world. That doesn't mean every Christian will suffer martyrdom like Peter, but loving Jesus does put you at odds with the global culture that denies God, suppresses truth, and sears the moral conscience. If you turn to Jesus, this world is going to turn on you in some way. To identify with Jesus publicly by doing good to his people in the visible church is to draw the world's hatred. John 13, 35 is still true. The world will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. That's true. And it's true generally. And it's true in both directions with two different kinds of results. How the world responds to knowing that you are a disciple of Jesus is another matter. We want to take that as a pure promise of evangelistic success. They're going to know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. And we're like, yeah, let's love one another so that you know we're his disciples and they want to become his disciples too. But maybe they know you're his disciple and they don't want to become his disciple. Maybe they know you're his disciple and they want to kill you for it. Or they want to sue you for it. Or they want to exclude you for it. Or they want to fire you for it. You still want them to know? Rubbers meet in the road. Even now, the world often thinks that we are what's wrong with the world. Right? You hear that logic all the time. You read it. And the world might try to cancel us. 
They succeeded in Peter's case. They canceled Peter. They canceled Peter all the way to the cross. And if something similar happens to us, remember this passage. Jesus commissioned Peter to feed his sheep and then told him right after that he would suffer the world's bitter hatred for that. Christian, that may feel scary to you right now, but there is a strange encouragement here for us. Jesus knows all our suffering before it even happens. Our suffering for Jesus is no surprise to Jesus. He knows every way that loving Him through loving the church will get us in trouble with the world or even worldly elements within the church. So when that suffering comes, it doesn't have to take us by surprise. It doesn't have to take you by surprise. It doesn't have to disillusion you or make you wonder, well, is being a Christian really worth it? No, no. Jesus knew this was coming all along. I mean, who did you think you were following and where did you think you were following him? You follow a crucified Savior. There is no resurrection without crucifixion. You have to die in some way to follow this Jesus all the way. But if you don't follow him all the way, you're not following him at all. Whatever we have to endure for Jesus, he knew it was coming all along. And that means he can prepare you for it. He can stabilize us for it. He can strengthen us in and through it. He knows how long it will last. He knows what to do about it. He knows how to comfort us in it. He knows how to enable us to endure. He's been doing this for centuries for Christians. And he can make sure that whatever shame we suffer for Jesus will honor God. That leads us to our fourth point. How do you know you love Jesus? Love for Jesus suffers shame that honors God. It's ironic, isn't it? It's true. Verse 19. Jesus said what he said about Peter stretching out his hands to be led where he didn't want to go in order to signify the kind of death by which he would glorify God. In all likelihood, Jesus is warning Peter that he's going to die by crucifixion, stretching out his hands. The cross was a shameful way to die. Yeah, look again at how John puts it. It is that very shameful death by which Peter would not shame God, but would glorify Him. We all want to believe. We may even assume that the only way God can be glorified in us or should be glorified in us is for us to appear glorious in ourselves to the world. Right? I want to glorify God in my job, so Lord, give me this promotion. I want to glorify God in the neighborhood, so increase my disposable income and make all of my evangelistic conversations turn into conversions. I want to glorify God, so God, make me a success in everything I do. And do that on the world's terms and according to the world's criteria so they can understand what's going on. We usually assume that notoriety of that success and the world's recognition of that success is what we need. That we succeeded in serving Jesus and you can succeed too. But that is not altogether true, is it? That doesn't necessarily need to be the case. Sometimes it is. Peter would certainly glorify God in his life. That is true. But the point here is that Peter would glorify God in his death. 
in his shameful, excruciating death, he would glorify God. Have you come to grips with that? But his death would not appear glorious to the world, would it? In the world's eyes, crucifixion was the most shameful way you could die. Think that through, Christian. How do you expect to glorify God and God to glorify himself through you and in you? How do you expect that to happen? Jesus told the Apostle Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, brother, sister, I know your weakness because I share it. You fear that you will not glorify God at all because you are weak or obscure or because the world has put you to shame somehow because of your love for Jesus. But it is not your glory that glorifies Jesus the best. It is your shame endured for loyalty to Jesus that glorifies God. It is your shame endured for loyalty to Jesus that glorifies God. It is not your strength that glorifies God best, but His power made perfect in your weakness. You fear that your life will amount to nothing for Jesus, but your death might bring more glory to Jesus than you ever brought Him in your life. Think about Samson. You fear you will not succeed for Jesus, but it is not your outward success or wins for God that glorify Him. It is often your apparent losses and crosses endured in love for Him that glorify Him. You fear you will never do anything great for God, but it is not your greatness that glorifies God. It is your smallness used by His greatness that glorifies God. It is not the world's praise for you that glorifies God. It is the world's hatred of you and blame for you for Jesus' sake that glorifies God. And Peter knew this well. He said it himself. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you in being insulted for the name of Christ. Insult for the name of Christ equals glory for Christ resting on you. And again, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that name. Christian, it is your very suffering of shame for Jesus that glorifies Jesus. It is being insulted for him that honors him. We must all learn not to be ashamed to suffer shame for Jesus' name. You got to learn that. Don't be ashamed to be shamed for Jesus' name because that is glory. Notice here, too, that it is in losing his freedom that Peter will glorify Jesus most. They will take him where he doesn't want to go, and yet in losing his freedom and being taken where he doesn't want to go, he will be escorted to the kind of death by which he will glorify God. Americans don't seem to be able to understand that very well, myself included. How can we possibly glorify God if we lose our political freedoms? Well, watch. 
God will do it. He can. He has done it. Now, Christians love liberty of conscience and freedom of religion, and these are valuable assets that are worth maintaining, but freedom is not to be idolized by a Christian. Peter would glorify God by losing his freedom to the point of losing his life, and every Christian must be ready and willing to do the same without assuming that political freedom is an absolute necessity for eternal salvation or ministry success or glorifying God. None of us wants to lose freedom of conscience and freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, freedom for worship. We don't want to lose that. But if we do, then we must be prepared to follow Jesus, not only in life but in death, as Peter did. And then Jesus tells Peter, verse 19, follow me. But just a few days earlier, before his death, Jesus had told them in chapter 13, remember, where I am going, you cannot come. He just said that. Peter was confused. At that point, back in chapter 13, and said, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. You cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And that's when Jesus predicted his betrayals. Peter could not follow then, but now that Jesus had risen from the dead, he calls Peter, Peter to follow him, which probably has a double meaning. It's the simple and kind kind of mundane meaning, follow me as I get up from breakfast and leave the fire and let's go for a walk. But in the context of what Jesus said about Peter's death, Jesus also means follow me all the way to the cross. Follow me. And as they walk, Peter learns one more lesson. Which leads to our fifth, fifth point. Love for Jesus learns not to compare outcomes. Love for Jesus learns not to compare outcomes of discipleship. Jesus just said, follow me. And so in verse 20, what do we expect? What we want to see is, so Peter followed him. That's not at all what you read, is it? It's the opposite. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. So Peter doesn't simply follow Jesus. Peter turns and looks at how someone else is following Jesus and asks Jesus about that disciple and his fate. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? So Peter's just learned how he himself is going to die, and now he wonders how his friend John will die. Maybe Peter asked that out of concern for John as his friend. Will he have to die too? I hope not. Or out of some sort of sorrow or sense of injustice at knowing that he himself would meet a violent death and wants some company, as in misery loves company. Whatever the reason, Peter is comparing himself to John. If I'm going to be crucified, what about John? If crucifixion will be the net outcome of my following you, then what will John's outcome be? But instead of comforting Peter, either with the safety of John's death or with the similarity of John's death to Peter's, Jesus rebukes Peter for even wanting to know. If it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. From that answer, Jesus apparently thinks Peter might have hoped for John's company in the death of the cross. So what if I want him to remain as a rebuke to Peter's apparent assumption 
I don't want him to remain. I want him to die with me. Or maybe Peter thought it would only be fair that, he had, that if he had to endure the cross, John would have to do the same. But Jesus says, look, what if I want Jesus to stay alive, John to stay alive all the way until I return from heaven on the day of the Lord? Let's just say, for argument's sake, I want that. What would that have to do with you? And how you follow me? And from our perspective, we're kind of siding with Peter Emotionally, we're like, ah, that kind of makes all the difference in the world to me. But not to Jesus. What if I want to spare John the whole experience of dying at all? What if I want to take him up to myself like I took up Elijah without dying or Enoch? So what? What if I don't have the same suffering in mind for him that I have for you? So what? What if you have to suffer more? What if your life is cut short? So what? I said Jesus. to a disciple who was facing crucifixion. John's fate is none of Peter's concern. Peter's concern is to follow Jesus as Peter. Christian, you cannot look at the experience and this worldly outcome of someone else's discipleship and hope for the same or think you deserve it or think it's only fair that Jesus would give it to you. You have to walk your own road and you have to carry your own cross. You have to live your own life in Christ rather than wishing you could live someone else's life in Christ. Christian, whoever you are comparing yourself with, stop it. You're not serving yourself. So what that someone else doesn't have to suffer like you? The reason for that difference, the reasons for that difference in God's providence are way over your head and above your pay grade. I know you don't always understand why you're the one who has to suffer. I know. I don't understand it either. My job and your job is not to understand it. It's to endure it to the glory of God out of love for Jesus. So, so what that I have this hardship or that sorrow or some destiny in this life, a disease, a thorn in my side, regret, frustration, a lot in life that someone else doesn't have? So what? What is my conclusion from that difference? That it's not equal? That it's not fair to me? That God has made a mistake in ordering the circumstances of my life? That He's misunderstood the heart of my faithfulness to them, to him? That he's misevaluated me somehow? He's mistreating me or being too hard on me or undervaluing me? I'm not allowed to think like that. All I should be concerning myself with is following Jesus in the life he gave me. Not following Jesus 
and hoping for the life and outcome he gave someone else. There's, there's no one else that can live your life for you but you. And there's no use trying to live somebody else's life for them, hoping for their outcomes. So you see from this conversation how little Jesus cares for equality of discipleship outcomes in this life. He doesn't care at all. He doesn't intend an equality of outcome for all of his disciples in this life. That's not what he's about. He wants you to glorify him as you in the circumstances and providences that he's brought into your life. It is none of Peter's business how John's discipleship to Jesus works out in the end. And it's none of my business why other people may have to suffer less than me from my own very limited and often, honestly, self-pitying perspective. Besides, I may have no idea what they are suffering that I don't know about. It is useless to compare callings and crosses among Christians. Trust me, I have done it all too often myself. Why do I have to endure this and they don't? Why do I have to put up with this and they don't? Why do I have to wait for this or that and the other? They don't, they get it immediately. I don't know. But I should stop asking that, shouldn't I? That doesn't serve me well. God doesn't owe me an answer to any of those questions. He didn't know Job. And it's worse than useless to do that. It's faithless. It refuses to trust that Jesus knows what he's doing in ordering my suffering in relation to the comforts of others. Comparison to others is an occupational hazard in the life of any Christian because the Christian life is always lived in community with other Christians in the fellowship and camaraderie of the local church. So there will always be other Christians with you as fodder for your flesh to use as useless comparisons. Or else you just got to quit coming to church, which is not an option. And social media only invites comparison all the more. Why do they look so happy when I feel so sad? Why do those Christians seem to go from strength to strength? Well, I seem to go from struggle to struggle. Why does his marriage appear happier? Why does her husband so much more understanding? Why do her friendships seem so satisfying? Why does his life and ministry seem so charmed? Why does he look like he has the Midas touch and everything he turns turns to gold and everything I touch turns to... That's how you feel when you're all alone scrolling through your social media feed for too long. Oh, I stink as a Christian. They're awesome. It's not worth it. Much more. None of that is your concern. Any more than John's fate was Peter's concern. Peter's not going to be held accountable for how John does. Peter's going to be held accountable for how Peter does. You glorify God in the calling he gave you for following Christ. You double down on your life. (laughs) Don't try to roll the dice and try to play somebody else's life. You submit to God's providence in your life and in your death. You honor and serve Christ in your life, in your death. You are the only one who can honor God in your life, in your death. Nobody else can do that for you. Nobody else is called to do it for you. And you're not called to do it for or as anyone else. 
You cannot hope to live someone else's life or wish to die their death. Keep your eyes on your own road. Sixth and finally, the apostles' love for Jesus is our link to Jesus. The apostles' love for Jesus is our link to Jesus through Scripture. Jesus appointed the apostles, like John, verses 24 and 25, to testify in writing to what they saw and heard in Jesus. What they wrote is Scripture. So just as Jesus looked beyond him in the past and testified to the truthfulness of the Old Testament prophets by quoting them approvingly, so he looks forward and approves the authority of the writings of the apostles by commissioning them as his authoritative representatives. When they wrote Scripture, what they wrote is Scripture, and it is Jesus breathing his Spirit into them that guided them into all truth and preserved them from error and produced the inerrant, God-breathed Scripture that divine providence has preserved for us today. That's how we know John's testimony is true. Jesus appointed John. That's it. And so John had Jesus' authority to write what he wrote. And now we know, if we love Jesus, by how we respond to the apostles' written testimony about Jesus in Scripture. Do we love Jesus as John loved Jesus? John's testimony to Jesus is not coldly analytical. It's warmly devotional. It's relational. It's practical. It's personal. And John's eyewitness testimony to Jesus, written down and preserved in Scripture, invites and even demands a response from us to what we've seen and read about Jesus in Scripture. The Apostles' writings form our link to the person, authority, and salvation we find in Jesus. It's by reading their writings that we learn to love Jesus. It's reliable. And although it is an admiring testimony to Jesus, it is also an admirable and reliable testimony. They admired Jesus, no doubt. They're not trying to be objective. They wanted us to admire Jesus too. They want us to worship him. And based on John's testimony here, I think we should. It's from that same love and admiration of Jesus that John finishes by saying that Jesus did so many other things that if they were all written down, they would fill the whole earth with the books that would be written of his exploits. Now that is sanctified exaggeration. But it is praise acceptable to Jesus. The point of that exaggeration is simply that what John has shown us in his gospel is only the tip of a massive iceberg that he has no ability to show you in its scope and depth and breadth and height. So he just chipped off a little edge. He goes, here's 21 chapters of the iceberg. This is enough. Jesus did so many other things that John had to cut out far more than he could include, but he's given us enough to work with, enough to know, enough to make up our minds, enough to worship Jesus, enough to love him. And John wrote it all, remember, so that we might believe and that believing we might have life in his name. Believe what? That Jesus is God's eternal word made flesh. That Jesus alone has seen and explained God the Father. That Jesus is the one ladder to heaven, lowered down from heaven. That Jesus is the Lamb of God who really does take away the sins of the world by His sacrificial death in our place to pay the penalty for our sins. John wants us to believe that Jesus is the true temple of God, that He is in Himself the place where man can safely meet with God. 
He is the good wine of the new covenant, saved for the fullness of time. He is God's only Son, sent into the world, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He is the Messiah, hoped for by the woman at the well, who teaches us all things. He is the one of whom Moses wrote, and the one to whom God has given all judgment and salvation. He is true bread from heaven, and the bread that He gave for the life of the world is His flesh. He is the one who invites us to come to Him if our souls are thirsty, so that He can make rivers of living water flow right from out of our own hearts by the giving of His Holy Spirit to us. He is the light of the world. He is the I Am who was before Abraham. He is the Good Shepherd who laid down His life for the sheep and took it up again at the very command of His Father. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the one Isaiah saw high and lifted up in the temple of his glory. He is the servant king. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through him. He is the vine, and we are the branches. And apart from him, we really can do nothing. He is the one who has overcome the world. He is the king of the Jews, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the first, the last, the living one. He died, and behold, he is alive forevermore. And he holds the keys to death and the grave. This is the real Jesus. This is the only Jesus there is. He is the only Jesus worth believing. This is the Jesus John has testified to seeing. This is John's testimony. And we know that his testimony is true. Do you know it? Let's pray again. Lord Jesus, what a marvelous Savior you are. You are the living image of the living God. And John has borne witness. And we as Christians have believed his witness. And we have believed that his witness functions as your own self-witness that you are true, that you sent Jesus, and Jesus is your son, and he is your appointed prophet, priest, king, and savior for all who understand themselves to be sinners under your wrath and liable to the fires of hell. Oh Lord, may we trust him ever more deeply, and may we find him always true and faithful. May we never doubt the testimony that you have given to yourself in Scripture through the prophets and apostles. But may we take you at your word. May we believe that you are, and that you are a rewarder of those who seek you. Give us grace to persevere in your truth and the witness and testimony of your truth in Scripture so that Jesus might be glorified both in our life and in our death. For his sake, amen.